We we turn in our Bibles to Romans in chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, thinking today of being right with God without good works. You have possibly been seeing and hearing of the family of an accused person who wants that person to serve a longer sentence. They believe that the sentence passed by the judge is not harsh enough and that this convicted person should have an increased punishment to satisfy their sense of justice. They want the sentence passed by the judge plus. And this is the theme of Romans and chapter 4. The question has been asked and answered, should we add anything to the work of Jesus who has satisfied the justice of God against our sins? Should we look to add our efforts, our good works, the taking of the sacraments, the law, to what Jesus has done? Is Jesus paying the sentence to the heavenly judge enough for our salvation? In this short series of four sermons on being right with God, we study this fourth chapter of Romans. It emphasizes that we are made right with God by faith in Jesus alone, without adding anything to that saving faith. That was the conclusion of the writer in chapter 3 and verse 28. For we hold that one is justified, made right with God by faith apart from the works of the law. That is, you, I, anyone is made right with God given a sentence of no condemnation by faith in Jesus alone. This being made right with God negatively means the forgiveness of all of our sins. Positively, being made right with God means the imputation, the laying to our account of the righteous life of Jesus Christ. Our church catechism contains both of those elements in its answer to the question, what is justification? In that answer, it includes the negative and positive. God pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. That moment, that divine declaration happens in our life. By faith in Jesus alone. Many of us struggle with this teaching. As the first readers of this chapter in Romans did. We naturally want to contribute something to be made right with God. To our forgiveness, our salvation. We want to throw in our pennies worth. We want to lend a helping hand. We want to make a contribution to our salvation. And so chapter 4 of Romans is so helpful for us, so important for us. It addresses this natural propensity within us all. 
It lingers over that thought. And one by one, it picks off the contributions that we suggest, that we offer, that we insist on. It mentions the top four, our good works, the sacraments, law. Not surprisingly, these four contributions are still alive in the thought and behavior of religious people today. The conclusion which the whole chapter is driving at is found in the famous verse of the next chapter, verse 1. Therefore, therefore, this is the conclusion of the argument in chapter 4. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the single point, the climax, the conclusion, the thesis that the writer is proving in this chapter. This is the heart of the message of the Bible that John Smith, Mary Brown, Tom, Dick or Harry, Jane, Sally or Susan can be made right with God by faith in Jesus alone. We want to consider the four points raised in this chapter emphasizing faith in Jesus alone. Think first of all of the question raised in verses 1 and 2. The question raised here is, are our good works necessary for salvation? Is church attendance, tithing or income, deeds of kindness to our neighbors or enemies required for our salvation? And to settle this important question, do good works have to accompany our faith for salvation? The writer considers the experience of an important figure in history. This approach is familiar to us, isn't it? We read biographies. We learn from the stories of other people. I'm reading the biography of Isabel Kuhn at this moment. And those experiences of others, they shape us, they inform us, they challenge us, they motivate us. One occasion, Isabel Kuhn asked God for a sign if she should return to the mountain mission station during the Second World War. The sign she asked from God contained four elements to it. And as I read her experience, I was asking myself, is this the way that I should seek guidance from God? Each of us has a Christian hero. Out of the Trailblazers series, each child will have a favourite. And so here the writer, he directs us to, to answer this question, to learn from the experience of someone else. The example of Abraham. He shows us here where Abraham was right. Then what ways were to follow him? Or perhaps you ask, and thank you for your question, why Abraham? Well, the person of Abraham is discussed here because he was the head of the nation of Israel. See verse 1, our father, our forefather, according to the flesh. A good number of Jews were in the church in Rome. Some of them argued or thought that Abraham had earned his salvation, that he worked for his salvation. 
And so the apostle is answering that question which was alive in his time and is alive in our time. Do we have to perform good works to earn our salvation? The nation of Israel looked to Abraham. What he did, they did. He was promised the land of Palestine. They lived in the land of Palestine. He was promised a nation. They were the nation. The case of Abraham then is appealed to here by the apostle. And the the question he asks then is, what was Abraham's experience? Was he justified by works before God? See in verse number two, he he uses the word if. He's engaging in this possibility. If Abraham was justified by works. Think about this. Was he the upright man, the righteous man? Was he justified, made right with God by his works? Did he do 51% of good deeds or more? Did his good deeds outweigh his bad deeds in God's eyes? What was his experience? And and the apostle prolongs this supposition, uh, this hypothesis. He says, well, if he was made right with God by works, then he's got something to boast of before, but not before God. Because God requires not 51%, but 100%. So this is the question raised. What about Abraham? Let's think about this character in the Bible and history who was so influential for some of the readers of this book of Romans. What happened in his life? The question about the tourist tax in the UK may not concern you. Though the Beckhams and Marks and Spencers have voiced their opinion on this question, it might never have troubled you. Perhaps you've given it no thought. You've not thought of the pros and the cons of the tourist tax in the United Kingdom. But we've all thought about being right with God and whether our good works are required or not. And this is the question the apostle is addressing. And it's a live question for us. It's not remote. It's not detached. It's not obscure. It's not redundant. It's not dated. It's not irrelevant. It's a question in our society, in our life, in our group of friends, in our workplace. In all of us, there's a sense of being accountable to God and of meeting God one day in the judgment. Deep down in all of us, we want to be right with God and many claim to be going to heaven by their good works. They attend church. They take communion. They don't do anyone any harm. They cite the Bible in support of their position. We love our enemies. We do to others as we want them to do to us. Even citing the Ten Commands. People around us, we ourselves, are concerned about this question. Are good works part of earning our salvation? Come secondly to the answer the apostle gives. The answer to the question of salvation by works is that Abraham was made right with God by faith and not by works. The apostle turns us to the Bible you see in verse 3. What does the scripture say on this point? He cites this text from Genesis 15 verse 6. 
which we read together. Abraham believed God, verse 3, that was counted to him as righteousness. This was a famous text among the writers of his time. This is a text which is germane to the question which he's asking here. Genesis 15.6 helps us with answering this question. So what does it mean? What does it say about Abram's experience? Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham, who was in his 90s, believed that God would provide descendants for him, which would include the Savior, Jesus. It was not only a belief that he would be granted natural descendants, but a belief in the promised Savior, Jesus. The meaning counted means to to lay uh, to the credit of, to reckon to, To impute unto, Douglas Moo says, to account to him a righteousness that does not inherently belong to him. This is something foreign to him. Something which is imposed on him. Something which comes from heaven down into Abram's experience. An imputed righteousness. It is counted to this man who believes in the coming Jesus. Abram's response to God's promise leads God to reckon to him a status of righteousness with him. Abram's relationship is established as an act of God's grace in response to Abram's faith. There are many examples besides Abraham in the Bible of people being made right with God by faith. The most famous one is the the dying thief at the cross. He was promised by Jesus acceptance into the very presence of God when his hands and his feet were impaled to a tree. He couldn't do any good works and yet he was promised entrance into the very presence of God. There are two ways of dealing with any charge against us in a court One is to represent ourselves, to argue our case, to defend our actions. But the other is to hire someone with greater knowledge and insight and ability to represent us. Some people are seeking to represent themselves, hoping that their good will outweigh their bad hoping that they will do enough to to argue with God, to persuade God, to let them into heaven at the end of life. But we're imperfect. We cannot meet the righteous, holy, just standard of God. We need Jesus, the representative of sinners, who pleads on our behalf, who fulfills God's law in our place. And when we, like Abraham, believe in Jesus, that righteousness of Jesus is credited to us. It becomes ours. We are counted righteous by faith. Thirdly, the apostle reasons in verses 4 and 5. He's looked at the Bible, now he turns to logic and reason. And he takes us into the workplace and he considers the the theme in verses 1 to 8 of work in the workplace. And he says, how does it work 
in your workplace, in your school, in your, in, in your office, in, in your farming? How does work and reward operate? So he argues in verse 4, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. The worker receives pay as a matter of obligation or fair compensation. The employer owes the worker a wage, does not give money to the worker freely as a gift. The Christmas bonus, if you get a a Christmas bonus, is a gift. But that is a rare and an unusual act of kindness by your employer. Usually, the monthly salary is earned by work. So the apostle is reasoning. Since work means the reward is given by obligation, but the righteousness of God is a free gift to us in Jesus then being made right with God cannot be dependent on our works. Douglas Moo says justification is a gift freely bestowed, not a wage justly earned. And the apostle teases this out in the, in the fifth verse. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The one who does not work. Paul is not canonizing laziness or arguing that a Christian never has to produce good works. The point is that this is a person who does not depend on their works for righteous standing before God. And to emphasize this point, see in verse 5 the phrase, the one that is God who justifies the ungodly, declares righteous the ungodly. And to appreciate that the wonder of this phrase, the boldness of this phrase, we think of the Old Testament places where God warns the judges of cities not to declare righteous the wicked person, to deal justly with the righteous and the wicked in their judgments. And in Exodus 23, God says, I will not justify the wicked. But here we are in the gospel. This incredible phrase in verse 5. God justifies the ungodly. It is not that he's condoning our sin. It is not saying, he's not saying that we are sinless But as we believe in Jesus Christ and receive his perfect life credited to us, God looks on us through Jesus and he can say of us who are trusting in Jesus, you are righteous in my sight. He justifies, he declares righteous the ungodly who are trusting in Jesus. Just listen to our society at this very moment to get the logic of Paul in verses 4 and 5. Think of the current strikes by the NHS workers, some of them, train drivers. Their actions, disruptive to many honest people, are illustrating the teaching of the apostle here. Workers deserve to get paid. Being made right with God is a gift, it's not a wage. This point helps those of us who struggle 
with assurance of salvation, being made right with God as a gift received by faith alone. It's totally free. One penny of ours cannot contribute to it. One second of charity work given by us in this world cannot add to it or earn it. We cannot do anything to get it and we cannot do anything to lose it. Train drivers are saying they are worth more than they are getting. We in church today are saying we deserve nothing from God, but we receive the gift of eternal life freely offered in Jesus. Not by works, not by earning. It's not a wage. It's a free gift in God's grace. Lastly, the confirmation supplied in verses 6 to 8. Having cited the Bible, having taken us into the workplace and used reason, Paul now confirms his conclusion by faith we are made right with God, not by our good deeds. How do we confirm anything? We usually cite another example. I might argue that I consider the best walk in arts to be the Clandy Boy way. I might support my claim by appealing to the beauty of the tree-lined avenue on the Clandy Boy way. I might further support my claim by mentioning the, the, the beach in Helen's Bay at the end of the Clandy Boy way. We make our point many times by citing further examples. And this is what the apostle does here. He says, we've thought about Abraham. But is Abraham rare? Is Abraham unique? Is Abraham a one-off? So he gives us a second example in verses 6 to 8. See verse 6 beginning. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. What Abraham's case was is the very same as David's case centuries later. But David's case adds to our understanding of Abraham's case. In Abraham's case, that there was the, the, the positive side. God counted to Abraham who believed in his promise, saviour, righteousness. Here, he's looking at the negative in David's case. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord, verse 8, will not count his sin. So, so there's this two-sidedness to be made right with God. What God does count to us, but also from David, what God doesn't count to us. He looks at us. And he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. But what he doesn't see is all of our sins. He doesn't count against us our sins. The civil servants are after Steve Barclay now, aren't they? With reports of him bullying. No formal complaint has been made yet. The reports seem a bit flimsy of his bullying around the office and government departments. There's no real evidence for their claims yet. But here, there's a strong, clear, biblical evidence in Abraham and now in David that we, you, me, anyone, can be made right with God by faith 
without works. If you're not yet a Christian, what will you do with this argument, this evidence which the apostle has set out for us here of being made right with God by faith in Jesus without work? Will you ask for more evidence? The more evidence is not needed. There's an abundance of evidence from Genesis to Revelation because everyone in the Bible who is a Christian, a servant of God, is made right with God in exactly the same way by faith in Jesus. Or perhaps you'll discard this evidence. You'll turn your back on what Paul is teaching here and you'll go on believing that you can earn your way to heaven by your good works. I say one thing to you. We're not as good as we think we are. Remember Robbie Burns sitting in church? His mind wasn't on the sermon. His mind was on this dignified woman's hat And on this hat there was an insect creeping around. And he was distracted from the message and and imagining in his playful heart that how horrified this woman would be if if she could see what he was seeing. And and he wrote those famous lines and I'll translate them for you. Oh, Oh, would some power give us the gift to see ourselves as others see us. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in Jesus. The question raised, the answer given, the logic used, the confirmation supplied. And on Saturday, millions are going to be watching the coronation. And there will be spectacles all across the city of London. But there'll be one thing that we'll not be allowed to see. We'll not be allowed to see that moment when the archbishop takes the medieval spoon and pours in the special oil into the spoon and dips his two fingers into the spoon and sprinkles it on Charles's chest and on his head. He'll, he'll be behind those, those three tapestried shutters. Only Charles and the high altar in that moment when he's transformed from being a man to a monarch. And for you and I, in the depths of our heart, as we with weak faith, but true faith, place it in Jesus, the Son of God, In that moment, we are transformed from being in a place of guilt to being in a place of declared righteous in the sight of God, made right with God without works.